The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. Um, as you have your Bibles there turned open, you see we were beginning our study. I hope you've been looking forward to that, as I have. Uh, it's been good to have that little break in between. Um, finishing up our last book study and then having that Advent series, looking at the titles of Christ and now moving into uh, the book of John. Book of John is a powerful gospel. If you don't know what we do here, if you haven't been around long enough, what we try to do is we do a uh, New Testament book, Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament book, gospel or something to that effect. So two and one, two and the other, and then we always keep coming back to the gospel. Uh, and so I knew that, that it was either going to be John or Luke because we've already done Matthew and Mark. And so we, we've really felt like John was the one we wanted to go to this time because if you know much about the Gospels, there are three that are very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John kind of stands out there on his own. John is, as you read it, it's almost like he's filling in the gaps um, of the others. And um, it, he gives you just this incredible look. Now, one thing we talk about as we get into this is all the gospel writers are writing to different people. They're writing for different reasons. And that same thing is true with John. And you see it begin to emerge as early as the first five verses where he really begins to lay out where he's going with the gospel. The first five verses uh, basically serve as a thesis statement. So once he says those first five verses, everything else is to prove those five verses, is to prove what he said there and what he laid out there in that intro. And, and he makes some incredibly bold statements right there. And let's look at the first one right there in that first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, verse 2 is a reiteration of that. He was in the beginning with God. So we see in the beginning there twice, um, that the fact that he was with God. But notice that that second verse, what he's highlighting there is to make sure that no one misunderstood what he said in the first verse. Now, he didn't write it in verses, but the second sentence is to follow up the first sentence to make sure that no one misunderstood. Notice the second time he uses a pronoun, he, whereas he's talking about the word in the first one. So he's following up, letting you know where he's going with this. He's making a declaration about this idea of word and this word being not only with God, but the word was God. And then it says he was with God in the beginning, right? And, and so we go down further and we know that he's declaring that Jesus is this word, that he is the word become flesh and dwelling among us. So that's where John is going with this. But what we want to do today is just start with those first couple of verses there. Now, what you're going to see as the book of John uh, emerges is these themes that also come to the surface here in the very beginning. And these themes will repeat themselves as you move through. Themes such as life, light, witness, world, glory, truth. I mean, those are the things that you're going to see over and over again. Truth coming to light, the glory of God, uh, the idea of the world, the condition of the world, Jesus' intention for the world, uh, the witness of both John the Baptist and also Jesus himself, the witness that has come to be a witness of God's intentions and God's glory and God's goodness and God's faithfulness. So all of these themes you're going to see introduced very early, and then you're going to see them repeat themselves over and over again in the stories that John tells. Now, one thing that we know about 
Uh, the Gospels, as I was saying earlier, they all were written to different people and they were written for different purposes. John's was the one that's kind of unique in the sense that John writes specifically to everybody, okay? So Matthew is writing to mostly a Jewish audience. Mark is writing more to a Roman audience. Luke is writing to a Greek audience. John is writing to everybody. And he brings both of them in. I'm going to show you that as we move through the passage this morning. Ultimately, what John does here, though, in the introduction of his book, is he summarizes how this word was sent into the world as Jesus to then display this glory of God to all of humanity. And the rest of the book, in essence, bears out that theme. And that's the main theme, is that somehow Jesus is the fruition of this word. He is the word that has come in the flesh. Now, as you dig into studying the structure of the book of John, especially this first little bit right here, um, people will argue about whether it is a poem or whether it is a chiasm. And there are people who say, well, it's not a chiasm because of this. And the people say, it's not really a poem, even though it kind of rolls off the tongue, but yet it's not this. And, and ultimately, I don't really care where you end up on that debate because the point of it is, I don't know if John intends for this to be a poem or a chiasm, but I do believe that what John wants us to see is some very specific development of thought that is beginning to emerge here at the very beginning. Because again, this is his thesis statement. So there are some logical thoughts that he's putting out there and he's going to say, now this is connected to this, this is connected to this, and then he lays out his proofs for that as well. So as we dig into that, we're going to be paying attention to that. Again, the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, they start in Bethlehem. Mark starts with the ministry of Jesus. But John, he starts earlier than that. He goes all the way to, what does it say in the first three words? The very beginning. He's like, everybody else has started at some other point in the story. I want to go all the way back to the beginning, even really before the beginning. And, and John doesn't start with a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He begins with this cosmic force that's behind everything that is. In the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, he's going to go on in the next few verses that we'll spend more time on in the coming weeks. But he's going to say that everything that is made was made through him. So, obviously, this is an illusion going back to the creation story. Now, in the beginning, there's only two books that start with that. We talked about this last week. Genesis and John are the only ones that start with in the beginning. Now, Mark does start with in beginning. And he's just saying, in beginning my story... But in the beginning, John is being very specific. He wants to draw his, uh, his readers' attention back to the first book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis. Because it starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when you begin to compare what John says in his first chapter and what happens in the first chapter of Genesis, you can't deny the comparisons. There is issues of light. There is issues of life. There is issues of creation. There is issues of the word. And then how does God create everything? Out of nothing, he speaks it into existence. So there is these words that come out. Now, what is very interesting in our day and time when you get into, um, if you ever read astrophysicists who write books, I know it's on everybody's list, right? It's on your wish list of Amazon. I want the latest astrophysicist book. But some of them are actually uh, 
you know, on the popular level and, and I can read them. And there was one that came out not too long ago called The Elegant Universe. Has anybody uh, seen or read that? Just raise your hand. You'll look really smart. You're like, yes, I've read The Elegant Universe. Um, what is interesting about it, and I'm going to dumb this way down to my level, so hopefully my level's low enough for everyone else. And that is, they come down to what are the basic building blocks of everything that is. And, and without going through all the details of how they get there, they come to this point of what they call string theory. Now, string theory is, if you begin to understand how atoms are split, so you open up an atom and there's like gluons and mesons and, and all these other things. And, and what, you, what, what they assume is that as we are able to split more and more, we would find even smaller and smaller stuff. So what happens is every time they split it, they think, oh, that's the smallest building block of everything that is. And then the technology comes along and they're able to split that and all the stuff just oozes out of it. And they're like, oh, now that must be the smallest thing. And then the technology comes along and they can split that and it just gushes out of there. And they're like, wow, there's even more here than we thought. And so basically they come down to this idea that if we were able to, if we had the technology to split all the way down to the most basics of everything that is, that we would find these things that they call strings. Now, they're not necessarily strings like we think about it. It's more explained by vibrations, that vibrations somehow are the most basic building block of everything that is. Now, the reason I say all that, and obviously there's a whole lot more to that book than what I just told you, but the reason I want to bring it into this story is because when we find the very beginning of our holy scriptures that were written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, it says there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, right? Now here's what's interesting. That Hebrew word there, literally translated into English, hover, is more literally translated vibrated. Okay, so literally it says that the Spirit of God vibrated over the face of the deep. And the very next thing is, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And of course that begins the whole narrative of everything that we know of being created. And I think it's amazing that thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, all these smart people get together and they have all this technology and they start splitting all these things and stuff's laying all over the table and they're trying to figure out what the smallest one is. And they say, well, we don't really have the technology, but what we assume is that if we got to the most basic, that somehow it's vibrations, that there is these vibrations, there's these strings that vibrate. And oh yeah, that's amazing because somebody, this guy named Moses wrote a really, really, really long time ago that when God created everything, that there was a vibration that started the whole thing in process. Oh, really? Okay. So it's kind of like there was this uh, book written, God and the Astronomers. And uh, Robert Jastrow was the scientist that wrote the book. And he's an agnostic, not even a Christian. And he was talking about the Big Bang Theory. And he was talking about how um, whatever it was, they've gotten to the point. He says, and it's not just a matter of more decades of study. It's not, it's not a matter of more technology. He goes, we will never know how this universe came into existence. He said, because whatever it was that started it was so powerful, was so intense in heat that it burned any evidence of what it would be. So it's not a matter of more decades of study or more information. We will never know. 
And he writes it, I believe it's in chapter nine of the book. You can go look at it. It's an older book, but it's still pretty awesome. He writes it and he makes this admission in it. He says, so we as scientists over millennia have climbed this mountain of ignorance. We have drug ourselves to the top. And as we put our hand on the top and lifted ourselves to see what was there, there was a theologian who had been sitting there for centuries saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I thought that was a great admission from someone who's not even a Christian. But the truth is, we will never know. And the scripture says, that's all you need to know. All you need to know is that God initiated. God started. The beautiful picture is our whole Bible starts with God initiating something. And then John's gospel also starts with God initiating something. God initiated the fact that not only did he create you, but he wants you to know the meaning that your life has in this existence. It's not for nothing that you're here. The struggles that you go through, if you submit yourself to the authority of Christ and receive salvation, all of a sudden your suffering makes sense. All of a sudden, the things that you go through in this life will make sense because there is something bigger. There's a bigger story that we are coming under. And that's why John wants to draw our attention back to in the beginning. Now, quickly, John goes from in the beginning to picking up on what Paul talks about as this new creation. So he makes this allusion back to the first creation, but very quickly, he's going to talk about this new creation. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what does it say? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, the Greek word behind beginning often relates to the word, the English word origin or root. And there may be echoes of that here. The word who was in the beginning is also the origin of everything that is. And John's going to get to that in the coming verses. So the one who is in the beginning is also the root, the origin of everything else that there is. Now, John is also making some theological declarations here. He's making a very big declaration about who Jesus is. Because in his day and time, there was this movement called uh, docetism. Okay? Now, docetism was this belief that where men had a hard time putting deity and humanity together. So they, they, some, the one extreme of it was Jesus was divine, but he was not human. And there's no way that God could go through humanity. And there's no way that he could understand our struggles. And there's no way that he could be tempted in the ways that we are. So God, Jesus was divine, but he was not human. And the others go, oh, no, no, no. Jesus was human. He just wasn't fully divine. He was human. He walked in flesh and blood, and he had the Spirit of God on him. But he was still human. He wasn't God. He was other than God. And so some of the early church fathers were having to write to counteract uh, this false theology that was being perpetrated in this day and time. Now, what was happening was they were beginning to mix Greek philosophy with Christian theology. And so 
if you go back and read really the third and fourth century church fathers and their writings, most of their writings were to counteract a lot of this mixing that came together that created bad theology because they were bringing Greek philosophy in with Christian theology. Now, one extreme of this, again, denied the humanity of Christ. One extreme denied the divinity of Christ. That's why John in chapter 20, verse 31, said that his aim in writing the book was that to, he wanted to prove that Jesus Jesus was both the Messiah, the man, and the Son of God, that he was divine. So he begins with this very clear-cut declaration of Jesus' deity. So the question we would ask ourselves then, but so why use the word word and not the word Jesus? Why not say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Why not make that declaration so that it's very, very clear? Now, we would ask that from our perspective, from our culture, because that would make more sense to us. But remember, John wasn't writing to our day and time. He was writing to his. And actually, when you study it from that perspective, it makes a whole lot more sense why John did what he did. Because John wants to make sure that his readers do not think of Jesus just as some kind of lesser deity. Because that was in a Greek mindset, they believed that there were these deities and then there were these lesser deities. And so if John just made this statement that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God, they would say, oh yeah, 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 he was like one of those lesser deities. Now, John wants us to understand that Jesus is nothing less than the one God of Israel. He is nothing less than Yahweh. He's nothing less than the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And by calling him the word, John accomplishes that. Because when you dig into the etymology of that, especially from a Greek mindset, but also from Hebrew, you begin to see what John's doing here. So let's start with the Greek aspect of that. The word word in Greek is the word logos. Now, logos had a very specific meaning in John's day. A lot of it comes from that Greek perspective. So from their earliest days, the Greeks showed this great passion for the realm of ideas. They love to talk about new ways of living life. They love to talk about new ways of thinking, new philosophies on how life should be lived or how life could be lived. Uh, matter of fact, Paul goes to Mars Hill and Mars Hill is of course the name of, of, of the church here. And Mars Hill was a place that all the philosophers in Athens, Greece would come together and they would talk about new ways of living. They would talk about these new philosophies of life. And when they heard Paul teaching in the marketplace, they were like, this guy is putting a whole bunch of stuff together. We need to hear more of what he's talking about. Will you come and talk to us where we go and talk? And that place is Mars Hill. And so uh, Paul actually gets up there and delivers a powerful message at Mars Hill. What's amazing about it is he knows that none of these guys have any Hebrew or Jewish background. So he delivers a message and he quotes their prophets and their poets, but he brings it back into the gospel. And he says, this is who Jesus is. He acknowledges where they are in their thinking, but then he brings them back to the truth of what scripture teaches, which is so powerful of an approach for people who don't necessarily understand the gospel. Now, what you're finding here in John is that he does that even more masterfully, in my opinion, because he creates this in such a way that both the Jews and the Gentiles know where he's coming from. 
Again, remember, John is the gospel written to both, all audiences. He's not targeting just one with his gospel. He wants everyone to see this. And so he chooses this word, logos. Logos, that in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Now, again, let's go back into that Greek culture and understand why John picked this word. They, being the Greeks, were among the first to develop schools where men could completely devote themselves to studying nothing more than seeking to pierce the mystery of why we exist. Why are we here? Where did we come from? And so our whole way of understanding the modern world is much the fruit of Greek philosophy. Much of what we do in our own philosophy and our own science comes from what the Greeks initiated in that day and time. There was one pursuit of the philosophers that surpassed everything else. They believed that behind everything, everything that existed stood one ultimate reality that gave rise to everything else. Now, the heart and the soul of all Greek philosophy was to discover what is that ultimate reality? What is that thing that set everything else into motion? What is that thing that holds everything else to get together and gives purpose to all of those things? See, for a long time, they thought that they had come very close when they decided that all of creation was comprised of four basic elements. They actually called these things essences, okay? So there were four essences to the world. That is earth, water, fire, and air, okay? Earth, water, fire, and air. Those were the four essences, and they said that makes up everything. Everything can be defined by one of those things, earth, water, fire, or air. Now, after a while of debating this and talking about this and teaching this, they concluded that there had to be another essence that was like the glue that held those things together. And, and because they all have to be held in proportion to it, one another, right? Because if you let fire go unchecked, it's going to destroy everything. If you let water go unchecked, it's going to destroy everything. So they begin to think there's something that holds things together. There's like the glue that gives all of these things their balance that they need. So they called this fifth essence. Does anybody know what it's called? No, they didn't call it that because they hadn't got that far yet. But that's what John's going to call it. <laughs> They call it, there, somebody has it, quintessence. Quintessence, which means five or the fifth essence. Have you ever heard someone in a conversation say, oh, that's the quintessence of the whole argument, or that's the quintessence of, they're using this Greek term or, or this, this Greek philosophy term that means the center, the thing that holds everything else together. That's what they call the quintessence, okay? So quintessence is this thing that keeps all the other things in balance. Now, the view of the universe that was displayed with this idea of quintessence lasted for decades, but it left the philosophers with another question. What causes the quintessence to know how to order the universe the way it's ordered? 
So in other words, yeah, you can say that there's this glue, there's this thing that holds everything together and keeps it in balance, but how does it know how to keep things in balance? How does it know to tell the waters to only come so far? How does it know to let the fires only erupt in certain places? How does it know to keep these things in balance? And so what they become, they, they began to come to these conclusions that there has to be a designer in this. That there is some kind of design in creation, and that means there's a designer. This is when the Greek philosopher, and his name was Heraclitus. Heraclitus came up with the idea, and he's the first one to use the word logos. He defined that quintessence as logos. Now, up until then, the Greeks had used the word logos to refer to a person's reasoning skills or their thought processes. But get what, what happens is we get our word logic from the word logos and the Greek use of the word logos. So when we use logic, we're not just saying someone who can put a bunch of words out there. We're saying someone who can get up and talk and make sense. In other words, they can start with one thought, lead to another thought, and make sense of how those two things are connected, lead you to another one, lead you to another one, and then make sense of the whole thing of how they all are interacted with each other. That's what we are talking about with logic. It has to make sense. It has to follow follow some rules. Okay. So uh, I promise you, I'm going to come back to John chapter one, verse one here in just a minute. Now the Heraclitus used logos to describe the ordering principle behind the universe. He concluded that what they were looking for in the quintessence could only be found in the actual creation itself. It stood outside the universe but whatever this was that stood outside the universe is actually the thing that gave order and direction to the creation itself. Now, what happened is after this, other philosophers picked up this idea of logos and they began to run with it. And they began to refer to logos as the creative energy of the universe. They saw it as this all-pervading principle that held everything together. And then comes along one of the greatest Greek philosophers of all time, Plato. Plato gave expression to the idea of the Logos in a famous story that he would share about a cave. If you've ever studied Plato, then you know what I'm talking about. And he talks about these cave dwellers that dwell inside this cave, and they've never known anything else. So they're inside this cave, and the only light source they have is what's coming from the entrance of the cave, but they've never ventured out there. But what's interesting is this light source comes into the cave, and as people would walk by on the outside of the cave, it would cast shadows on the back part of the cave. And so they started paying attention to this and they started going, look at this, look what's happening right there. What are those things? And so what happened was the people inside the cave are not actually seeing the people, they're only seeing the shadows. So after a lifetime and many generations of cave dwellers, what happened is they began to think that the shadows are the real thing instead of just the images of the real things that have been projected by the light coming from a different source. So Plato used this story to say that all the things that we see that comprise the universe are merely the shadows of a higher reality. Okay, are you with me so far? No, nobody is, okay. So the higher reality, Plato says, is Logos. Logos is 
that higher reality. So we see these things. We see earth. We see fire. We see water. We see things that are ordered. But those are just the shadows being cast from something else. And that greater reality is what's causing all those things. But we can't see that greater reality. But we know it's there because we are seeing the evidence of that greater reality. That's what he was teaching with that. And so when we think about the word logos, it's much like the word chair. Now, when I say chair to you, immediately there's a picture that comes into your mind. And that would be the standard of what we think of when we think of chair. But you and I both know that I can use the word chair in a whole different context, and it's not that thing right there at all. I could say, I chair a committee at my church. Has nothing to do with something that you sit in, right? It has a whole different capacity to it. But that doesn't change the fact that every time I hear the word chair, I don't immediately go, oh, I wonder what kind of chair he means. There is this standard that's in my mind that when you say chair, the first thing that pops into my mind is the thing that we sit in. So here's the thing. By John's time, the Logos was the ideal behind all ideas. It was the ultimate reality explained the way the universe was as well as why it was. Now, here's what John is doing. Through Jesus... John had come to understand that the Logos wasn't merely some abstract philosophical idea. It was a person. And that person wanted others to come and know him, just as John had come to know him. And so John takes what was prevalent in his society in his day as this thought, this thought of the quintessence the Logos, the thing that holds everything together. And he says, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And you see where he's going to go with this, right? In a few verses, he's going to say, and then the Logos became flesh and blood. And the Logos dwelt among us. John is taking something that they are very familiar with. They, they talk about all the time. And he's bringing it into the context to say Jesus is that Logos. Jesus is the quintessence. He's the one that holds everything together. He's the one that was there before creation. And he, everything that was created, was created by him. Now, let's come from the Hebrew perspective. Now, considering how frequently John quotes the Old Testament, or at least makes allusions back to the Old Testament, we have to also begin there to wonder what he's talking about. So there, the word in Hebrew, which is dabar, dabar of God is connected with God's powerful activity, his activity in creation, his activity in revelation, and also his activity in deliverance. We see that over and over again throughout the scriptures. The Psalms talk about how the word of God delivered his people. So we see things like if the Lord is said to speak to the prophet Isaiah, as he does in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, elsewhere we find that the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, like in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 4. So there is the word of the Lord spoken by Isaiah, and there's this word of the Lord that 
comes to as a person, in this personal way, comes to Isaiah. So the scripture tells us in Psalm 33, 6, that it was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. God simply speaks and his powerful word becomes the creative force for everything that is. That same word affects deliverance and judgment. In Isaiah 55, in Psalm 29, the word of the Lord provides deliverance for his people. So when some of his people faced illnesses that brought them to the brink of death, the scripture tells us in Psalm 107 that God sent forth his word to heal them and to bring them back from the brink of death or from the grave. So in short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, in revelation, in salvation. The commentator goes on and says that the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. And so John is taking these personifications that were very familiar to both his Jewish audience and his Greek audience, and he's saying, follow me in this. I've got an incredible story to tell you, a story of beginnings, a story of origin, a story of purpose, a story of healing, a story of direction, a story of future, a story of life. But if the expression would prove riches for the Jewish readers, the amazing thing is that what John uses there as Logos also appeals to his Gentile or Greek readers because of their backgrounds. So in this case, they would soon discover that whatever they had understood this term to mean in the past, whatever, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Gentile, whatever they had thought of as Debar or Logos, that John was about to radically turn their definition on its head and give them a perspective that they had never, ever seen before. He was going to call on them to think about this with a fresh new perspective. You see, John intends that the whole of this gospel should be read in light of this one verse. He lays out this one verse to say, everywhere else I'm going, this is what I want to prove to you. That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, I know that blows your mind, but follow me in this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you story after story after story after story to show you what I'm trying to say. That's what John says to us in the very first verse of his gospel. The deeds and the words of Jesus, John says, are the deeds and the words of God himself. Now, I want you to understand this because this is powerful. If what John says here in verse 1 is not 100% true, this whole gospel is a heresy. John steps out there and makes the boldest claim that he possibly can in the very first verse to say, this is where I'm taking you and I'm going to offer the evidence to you that this is true. Now that's amazing. And I think it's amazing because we treat it 
lightly because we're so familiar with it. We're so familiar with the verse. We're so familiar with the gospel that we go, oh yeah, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was. We know those, those things because we t- learned them as kids. We've memorized them. We've talked about them in our small groups. We've heard sermons about them. But there's something that is absolutely blasphemous about this if it's not 100% true. Do you see that? And here's what John wants us as his future readers to understand. If it is 100% true, then how are you living your life in light of it? In other words, if it's not 100% true, but it's mostly true, then we can go, you know what? I'll take the things out of that that really benefit me and help me in that, but I don't have to accept the whole thing because it's not 100% true. But John is saying, if this is 100% true, that means that God was before you, that God was before this creation. And Jesus Christ is the epitome of God. He is God in the flesh. He's not a little God. He's not a lesser deity. He is God in the flesh. And as he lived and he taught, he was telling us how we should live our lives, how we should make our priorities, how we should see our destinies. And the thing is, if we aren't taking that into consideration with every decision that we make, with every step that we take, then we are not taking this to the fullest capacity that John intended. He's saying, if you accept verse 1, then you have to accept everything else that follows in my gospel. And if you follow everything else in my gospel, let me just be honest with you, out the door go your dreams, your ambitions, and your goals for your life. Why? Because they were manufactured outside of God's plan and destiny for you. Do you see that? Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to come in and he's like some kind of cosmic killjoy. And so he wants to take, oh, you had these great dreams of all of this. And now I'm going to crush that. And I'm going to send you to South Africa somewhere. And you're going to live in a little bitty hut. And you're never going to see anybody uh, come to faith. You're just going to sit there. And, you're, you know, we always think about the wor- if we give God our lives, oh, he's going to make us miserable. You know, I'm going to have to go to the Antarctic or I'm going to have to go to the Arctic and, and be a missionary to Eskimos. That, that's probably the calling. That would be what I would fear the most because I hate cold weather. Hate it. Hate it. Um, I've told you all that before. Hate cold weather. And so that was my greatest fear, that God would call me to Michigan um, and be a pastor. I could not imagine that in my life. Or Ohio. Um, I, I, number one, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to handle the way they talk, nor would I be able to. I'm just kidding. You people from Michigan, we love y'all. We're going to teach y'all how to talk one day, too. You're going to figure it out. Y'all going to figure it out, Right? No, but if you think about what I'm saying there and what I'm pointing you towards the truth of what John is presenting is that if you accept that first verse, man, it changes the way you see life. It changes every single decision that you make. Now, all of a sudden, it's not, hey, I really like this girl. I'm going to marry her and I'm going to ask God to bless it. Now, all of a sudden it is, God, who do you have for me? God, lead me in the way that you would have me to go. It's not, God, man, I'm going to be a doctor, and I'm going to go to this school, and I'm going to get this degree, and I'm going to make a lot of money. Lord, I just ask you to bless me in it. No, it's like, God, what do you want to do with my life? I, I belong to you. If this is true, you're the creator. 
You're the designer of everything that I see. Couldn't you do a better job of designing my life than I could do? If this is true, then the answer is yes. He can do much better with your life than you're doing with it. But what happens is we don't want to accept 100% of what John says. We want to just take the part that benefits us. So we love the fact that God is loving and God is caring and God is a God who blesses us. So what we do is we take our own agenda and we bring it in there and go, God, bless this. And when it doesn't happen the way we want it to, we get mad. Well, God must not be real. God must not be loving. God must not be any of those things. And then all of a sudden, if you dig into the scripture, what does Jesus say over and over again? God in the flesh comes to us and he says, this life is but a wisp of air. This life doesn't last very long. This life is going to be full of sorrows and trouble. This life is going to have disease in it. This life is going to have death. But take courage. I've overcome this world. And there's a world to come where none of those things will exist. There is a world to come where there is no sickness, where there is no disease, where there is no death, there is no end of life. And so you have to live in this reality in light of the reality to come. If you don't do that, then all of a sudden, all God becomes is what he was to those Greek philosophers, a God that you can manipulate for your own benefit. And how many of us have seen God in that capacity? God, why didn't you do this for me? God, why don't you do that for me? God, why don't you come through? God, I'm just going to abandon this. God, if you're not going to be the kind of God that I need, I'm not going to be the kind of follower you need. Hey, listen, this isn't a partnership. What John is saying is that we were lost and destitute in darkness and destined for eternity in damnation. But God came into the situation, revealed himself and said, if you trust me with your life, I can provide you with eternal life. And then what is the evidence that John's going to give us? Jesus. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus walks this earth, does every single person experience healing? Does every dead person come out of the grave? But there's enough of it that you see to know that he has power over it. Why does not every sickness become healed? Why does not every dead person come out? It's not about this life. Now, I, I'm, I know I'm alone in this, but there's a story where Jesus comes to a, a, a funeral. Actually, the funeral's already happened. His friend Lazarus, and as you see the story unfold, Jesus delays getting there. And the family is actually having a problem with Jesus. They're like, if you would have gotten here earlier, then we know you can heal him. And there comes this moment where he's standing there, and it's the shortest verse in Scripture. It says, Jesus wept. Now, I've heard all kinds of sermons about why Jesus wept. I've heard that it was, he wept because they didn't have faith. They had faith that he could heal them while he was alive, but they didn't have faith that they could bring him from the dead. I heard that he had... Uh, uh, wept because he saw the fruition of sin and what it does to people. I want to tell you what I believe. I believe that he wept because he didn't want to bring Lazarus back from the dead. I believe that he wept because he said, you know what? I'm going to have to pull this guy out of the complete presence of God. 
just to demonstrate to the people in this fallen world. He's going to have to walk in this fallen world again for a time. And I think Jesus wept because he didn't want to bring him back. It's amazing because we have a whole different perspective in reality, don't we? All we know is this life, and all we can think about is this life. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, I've told this before. Um, my middle son, who was not my middle son then, he was a little baby, so he was my baby at that time. Uh, his name is Caleb, and uh, I remember uh, one night, it was my turn to go pick him up after he's crying. So you know the night routine. If you had babies, you go and you change their diaper and they're awake and you either have to feed them or you got to get them a pacifier to kind of get them to go back to sleep. And you just kind of stand there and rock because as soon as they're gone, you're going to lay that thing down and go back to sleeping. And I remember just sitting there and he was kind of fussing and you know I was just getting him kind of getting quiet down. And I would often just pray for my kids whenever I had that moment, partly because believe in prayer and partly because of trying to stay awake. And I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for it. But I remember this one night in particular, and I'm not telling you guys that I heard an audible voice, right? I'm not saying I heard that, but I, it, was, it was direct as it possibly could be. And I remember holding my son and saying, God, this is, his name is Caleb. You know, I know in Hebrew, Caleb means dog. I didn't know that when I named him that, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but I thought of the, the guy, Caleb, in the Bible, you know, and, uh, and, and how he was a warrior, you know? I mean, he was the guy that went into the land and said, give me, the, give me that land up there. I'll take those strongest people. And he was like in his 80s, and he was like, I'll take them. I know God, me and God, you know, because God, if God does anything, if he's in it, we're winners. And I just thought, oh, what an appropriate name for, for a boy. And so anyway, I was praying for him, and I was like, Lord, I want you to use this, this young man, and I want, him to use it. I want you to use him for the greatness of your kingdom. And it was like in a moment, he said, if I'm going to use him, I'm going to have to hurt him. And in that moment, I remember, just as if it were yesterday, I, I squeezed him close to me, and I heard, who are you protecting him from? Me? And I remember my whole body just kind of releasing. And it was a moment where, after I laid him down, man, I could not go back to sleep. I just kept thinking about that over and over again. What, what does that mean? And the, the reality is this. Jesus said, in this life, you're going to have troubles. They hated me. They're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. If you want to live great for the kingdom, expect that you're going to have some hard times. But take courage. I've overcome this world. How? Because there's a whole nother life to come. That's where you get to experience the fruit of knowing me, of being in the presence of God. And people think of themselves, they think, well, being in the presence of God, I don't know if that's all it's cracked up to be. Because you go up and then you go like, wow, that's amazing. I'm in God's presence. But how long does that actually last before you just kind of are going, okay, uh, we've worshiped God. We've sang those songs. We've seen the angels. Now what? Uh, and I've even heard people say, man, I hope there's golf in heaven, or I hope that we can swim in heaven. Let me just tell you something. If, if you say those kinds of things, I want you to know, I don't know if there will be those things or not. I, I, I don't know. But one thing that we have missed is this, the infinite characteristics of God. 
The reason that you have these angels, I believe, in, in Revelation that are flying around the throne of God, who have their eyes covered, feet covered, flying around, and they're going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the picture is they just keep doing this. And you think, well, that would get boring after a while. That is unless God is infinite in his glory. And every time they fly around, they see another aspect of God's glory that they haven't seen for the past millennia, for the past million years. They've never seen it before because God is infinite in all of his character. And so every time you want to look away, you see something you've never seen before. So you can't take your eyes off of it because it's always new. It's always different. And it's always overwhelming. So you're not going to get to heaven and going, what all is there to do here? You're going to sit there and go, I can't believe that I'm here. And you're just going to be able to fall on your face and you're going to be like, I don't even deserve to see this. That's the picture of heaven. And yet think about what a big deal we make about this world. Think about how often our prayers are centered on what God can do for us here. God, make my life better here. Make me richer here. Make me more prosperous here. Lord, give me a better life here. Give me a better marriage here. Give me these things. That's living without the perspective that John wants you to have. And the reason I know that is because he starts off with this idea that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. God inhabited a body and he showed us how to live. And when we listen to his words and we see what he teaches... And then we see how he lives that out. And it's all about the next life. Don't lay up your treasures here. Lay them up in heaven. Here you're going to lose them. There you never will. Hey, love your enemies. Why? Because one day they're not going to be there anymore. So this is their one opportunity to know the truth. This is their one opportunity to see the gospel. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, you're going to feel offended. Yes, it's going to fly against everything that you think is right and true and good. But listen, trust me in this, because in this life, you're going to have trouble. But it's about the next life. You see, the things that Jesus teaches don't make sense at all if this is all there is. There has to be something more. And even as Jesus comes to the point of giving his life for humanity. He takes his disciples through this Passover meal that they have thought about for many, many years because they celebrate it every year. And every year they celebrate and it goes back to God freed his people from Egypt and he brought them into the land and we remember those things. And Jesus gives a new meaning to it. And as they're going through this age old Passover, he begins to reveal himself in the Passover meal. And he comes to two aspects of it in particular. And he says, this is a shadow of a reality that you're now beginning to experience. You know this afikoman that every time you take it out of the middle piece of the matzotash and you break it and you hide it away in the linen napkin and then the kids go search for it later and they bring it back and the papa redeems it and he takes it back and then we break it up and we all eat it? You're not going to understand this right now, but just remember that this is my body, which is broken for you. Okay, what would happen just a few days later? He would be taken, beaten, killed, broken, wrapped in linen, hidden away. And then three days later, he comes forth because the father has redeemed him. 
You're not going to understand this right now, but what I want you to do is I want you to think about this, and I want you to remember me because this stuff is going to make a whole lot more sense later on. And then he came to the third cup of wine that they would drink. It's called the cup of redemption. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood that's going to be spilled for you and your sins. Take it and drink from it, all of you. And so he did something different there. He, he, they literally drank from his cup, not their own. So at a, if you've ever been to a, a Passover meal, a Seder, then, then you know that everybody has their own cup in front of them. So Jesus kind of broke the tradition. He said, all of you drink from this. This is my blood that's spilled for you. And then it says that Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. Now that's interesting because in a Passover meal, there's also a fourth cup. It's called a cup of joy. So if we understand the way that night went, Jesus led them to that point. They never drank the cup of joy because he said, I'm not going to drink of this again. But then just a few hours later, Jesus is praying in the garden. He says, Lord, God, Father, if there's any way that you can take this, what does he say? Cup from me. What cup is he talking about? The cup of God's wrath. So in that Passover meal, he didn't drink the cup of joy. Instead, he drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of joy. And he drank it until the last drop was gone. And then they wrapped his body in linen they hid it away in the earth. And three days later, the Father redeems and brings him forth. It's amazing because the, the Hebrew blessing for the Afikomen, when they break it and pass it around, it is, Blessed are thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. The bread of life was brought forth from the ground, the dirt of the earth, in redemption and resurrection so that we could experience life. So what we want to do is we open up our study of the Gospel of John. We want to remember what this is about. We want to remember where this is going. We want to start it off with a reflection that it's not about this life and all of our preoccupations with the things in, in this world. And not to say that, you know, God understands that we are going to be anxious. That's why he tells us, don't be anxious for things. He knows that that's going to be. So there's nothing wrong with struggling with the things. It's wrong with the continuing to struggle with them because the words that rescue, the words of life are right here for us to embrace and to be known by. And so today what we want to do is celebrate by partaking of the picture of Christ's body and his blood by eating of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, and we want to remember him. That's what he told him, remember me, remember me. Why? Because when they did it, it didn't make sense then, but it made sense later. Guess what? The reason we continue to do this, there's something in your life that doesn't make sense right now, but he wants you to remember that he's going to make all things new. One day it's going to make sense. One day it's going to make sense. Let's pray. God, what an awesome verse to start off a study in a book. It reminds us that before creation, you were. You continue to be. 
and you always will be. It's amazing, Holy Spirit, how you directed the authors of the Holy Scriptures. That they used just the right words that were so appropriate in their day and time, and yet the meaning carries thousands of years later to our day and time. Lord, we still have struggles. We still get caught up in this world of things here, trying to make sure that we have enough. Lord, our hearts break because of things that happen around us, sickness, disease, hurt. Lord, this life is tough, and, and you know because you are here. Lord, unlike any other religion and any other God, false God out there that's to be worshipped, none of them have become flesh and blood and understand the misery and the joy the depression, the hope that this life affords us. And yet you came and you navigated this life and you said, follow me and I'll show you the path home. Lord, we are reminded that you are good and that your love endures forever, that you are faithful to all your promises and that you are loving towards all that you have made. Lord, we remember that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the fairest of 10,000. You are a mighty counselor. You're the prince of peace. You're the shepherd of our heart, the bishop of our souls. You're the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes before the Father except by you. Lord, we remember. Lord, help us not to forget. As we take of these elements, may we, who are followers, dedicated ourselves to you in totality. Not that we're perfect, but we've crossed that line and we're holding nothing back. Lord, those of us who can say, that's us. Lord, we want to come forward and we want to take. And Lord, anybody here within the sound of my voice today who can't say that, who can't say, I've given my life in totality. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would reflect on what you have to offer them in salvation. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move upon their heart. I pray that today would be their day of salvation and they come to truly know you as Savior and Lord. May you be honored and glorified in our participation in this incredible, incredible picture of your sacrificial love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.